take Christ on his own terms. Give up yourself wholly to him. There is no greater object of meditation than ourselves. That delivers us from the world, from its powerful temptations and persecutions and threats. God is the portion, the glory, the reward, the treasure. Listening to the Puritan Conference Podcast, brought to you by Reformation Heritage Books. Tune in weekly for some of the most profound insights on Puritan thought, praxis, and theology ever presented online from the mouths and minds of today's greatest pastor theologians, including Joel Beakey, Michael Reeves, Jeff Thomas, Sinclair Ferguson, John Piper, and more. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, Assurance is the conscious confidence that we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. The confidence that we have been justified and accepted by God in Christ, regenerated by the Spirit, adopted into his family, and that through faith in him, we will be kept for the day when our justification and adoption are consummated in the regeneration of all things. Assurance of faith has been called by Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, who wrote a classic on this subject called Heaven on Earth, the cream of faith. There's an intimate relationship between faith and assurance. One Puritan put it this way, it's like an acorn compared to an oak tree. Is the entire oak tree embedded in the acorn? Obviously not. But is the seed of the oak tree in the acorn? Yes. So what does that mean? That means that in all active faith, the germ, the seed of assurance is there. And so when people say assurance is of the essence of faith, in a sense, they're right. That's what the Puritans said. But when the Puritans spoke about assurance of faith, they're talking about an absolute certainty that I know that I know that I believe that I believe and a certainty that promotes godly fruit in my life so that I long for heaven. I see every unconverted person as a mission field. I'm full of zeal for Christ. One Puritan said it's like full assurance of faith is like sailing with a strong gale in a a sailboat full of cargo. An assured Christian is a joyous Christian. Thomas Goodwin said, a fully assured Christian is like a fruitful tree bearing all manner of fruit. And he is 10 times more active for Christ than a Christian who is not assured. So in the Puritan mind, assurance is not what many people think it is today. Oh, well, I I believe in Jesus, so I, I have assurance. So assurance will manifest itself. 
in, in zealous fruits, in being a white-hot flame for the Lord. A fully assured Christian is one who is overflowing with love for God and for his gospel salvation. And the Bible speaks of it this way. Full assurance of understanding, Colossians 2.2. 2. Full assurance of hope, Hebrews 6, 11 and 18. And full assurance of faith, Hebrews 10.22. So in the Puritan mind, you see, you may have the acorn of faith, but you may not have the full oak tree of assurance. In fact, assurance can waver. It can ebb and flow according to your own personal walk of life. But the goal of every Christian ought to be to make their calling and election sure, to know and to grow in assurance of faith. Now, this subject has been very dear to my heart. I've worked pastorally as a minister in the last 45 years with hundreds of people, counseling them on how to grow in assurance my doctoral dissertation was on this subject. I then simplified it a bit for Banner True Trust. And they have my book on their table, I believe now, Quest for Full Assurance. But then later on, I simplified it about five years ago at the request of Christian Focus to do a layman's level book called Knowing and Growing in Assurance of Faith. And in all of these books, I'm trying to show at different levels that assurance of faith is neither easy believism, where you simply say, well, I believe Jesus is Christ, and uh, yes, I, uh, I hope my sins are forgiven, so I've got assurance. Nor is it hard believism, hard believism, where there may be solid biblical evidence that I am a child of God, but I set the bar so high, or I look for evidences that I have no right to expect on, on this side of glory. But full assurance of faith is a growing thing in which more and more I can say, I trust in God and I know that my only hope is in Christ and I'm on my way to glory and I'm as sure of my salvation by this sheer one-sided sovereign grace of God. I'm as sure of that as I am of anything in this life. I know that I know, I believe that I believe, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is more real to me than the church pews you're sitting on right now. That is assurance of faith. And this, this whole question of assurance is, is so important in the Christian life, so important in every context when I handed in my doctoral dissertation to my advisor, he said to me, now, one day you ought to write a full systematic theology from out of the doctrine of assurance of faith. Because assurance is connected to everything. It enriches our communion with God. It enhances our zeal in Christian service. It accelerates our sanctification. It emboldens us in our confession of the gospel before a dying world. Assurance is really the nerve center of doctrine put into use, as the Puritans would say. That is, God's truth applied to our lives and to the life of the world. 
It entwines itself with the work of the Holy Spirit in every link in the chain of salvation. It touches every facet of salvation as we come to experience it and live it out. Assurance is broad in scope, profound in depth, glorious in height. So in this address, what I want to do is I want to walk you through the four paragraphs of the most important chapter ever written confessionally on assurance of faith. And you guessed it, Westminster Confession of Faith, written by basically a 100 Puritans, chapter 18. And we're going to look at these four paragraphs one by one because it's a beautiful summary of the Puritan doctrine of assurance. Before I do that, however, I want to look with you at just two thoughts. First of all, to answer the question very briefly, why do many Christians lack assurance? Well, many Christians today think they have it when they don't, and many don't think they have it when they do have more of it than they realize. But many times the lack of assurance is grounded in bad theology or misguided concepts or misunderstandings. Let me just give them to you as bullet points very briefly. Sometimes a genuine believer may struggle with assurance because, first, our deep conscious awareness of our indwelling sin We think we can't possibly be assured Christians and struggle with sin the way that Paul did in Romans 7, even though Paul was assured. Second, we can have false conceptions of God's character and of his gospel and the delight the Father has in giving assurance to his children. Third, we can have lack of clarity on justification by faith alone. Fourth, a lack of confessing Christ to others, which will bring us into a state of backsliding ultimately and lukewarmness when we avoid declaring with our mouths that Jesus Christ is our life and our Lord. Fifth, a lack of obedience, backsliding, can bring us down in our levels of assurance because low levels of Obedience will produce low levels of assurance. Then, six, there can be ignorance of satisfying evidences of grace. We'll hear more about that later. What are those evidences of grace? Whereby I may know that I know. Seventh, we can possess a doubting or negative disposition. There are people in this world who also spiritually, when the cup is seven-eighths full, say it's one-eighth empty. And then, lack of clarity concerning the circumstances of our conversion. Some people are misguided that they think they need to know the exact moment of their regeneration or some very overwhelmingly powerful experiences in their initial conversion. Then, some people are looking for the wrong kind of experience, unbiblical experience, mystical experiences, that are detached from Scripture. Some people lack it because they, they forget to acknowledge God for what he has done in their souls. They despise the day of small things. And some people that I've worked with 
just are harassed by Satan so often, so much, that it damages their assurance. So that raises a second question. Is assurance of faith biblical and normative? And the Puritan answer, after the Puritans grapple with all these kinds of problems why Christians lack assurance, is always, it depends on what you mean. If you mean the full, robust kind of assurance where the believer is living out of amazing joy of salvation and is on his way to glory and longs for the second coming of Christ, it sees every unconverted person as a mission field, cannot help but speak to everyone about Jesus. If that's what you mean, Puritans would say, that is not as common as it ought to be. But if you mean some level of assurance, yes, that is biblical and that is normative. That's why you may get confused when you read the Puritans' books because sometimes they will say, well, assurance is normative. Look at, look at David, look at Paul, look at all these biblical examples, look at the first epistle of John. And other times they'll say, well, very few children of God have this full assurance of faith, of this robust life with the Lord. But in all cases, you see, the Puritans would say, whatever degree of assurance of faith you have, you want to grow it. You want to become a more robust, a more zealous Christian for the Lord Jesus Christ and have ever greater levels of assurance of faith. And that often comes, usually comes, with time and experience and communion with the Lord. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, my wife and I just celebrated our 33rd wedding anniversary. Was I absolutely assured, absolutely assured when I married her that she loved me and I loved her? Yes. Am I absolutely assured more now, 33 years later? <laughs> yes. Well, I was assured before. Well, it's like that with a Puritan mindset, you see. You can have assurance and yet have more assurance. Because God has such a good track record, you see. I know even more now that she loves me because after 33 years, I have thousands of examples. I've tasted it every day. I've felt it. I've been on the receiving end of her love. Over and over and over again. For me to deny her love would be ridiculous. I know that I know I love her. And I know that I know that she loves me with a greater dosage of assurance than I knew the day I married her. And so it is with us, ought to be with us anyway, if we're not backsliding. We ought to grow and grow and grow. So it, it's it's... It's a parallel, in a way, with what's going to happen in heaven. Say you have a 20-ounce a, a glass of water that's full, and then you have a 48-ounce glass of water that's full. Well, there's more water in this glass than in this glass, right? But they're both full. So you can have a degree of full assurance even, and yet that assurance can still expand in capacity. Like John Howe, the Puritan said, in heaven, tis cumulative glory. 
their glory becomes greater and greater. So on earth, the assurance becomes greater and greater the more I experience God's faithful track record to me. All right, let's jump into uh, Westminster chapters 18.1 through 4, paragraphs 1 through 4. I'm going to try to have these shown there. I don't know if you can read it well. I'm going to read each paragraph, but uh, hopefully you can uh, read it somewhat behind me. Now, no group of theologians worked harder or were better at spelling out the biblical doctrine of assurance and faith than the 17th century Puritans. More than 20 of these 100 Puritans wrote treatises either on faith or assurance or both. More than 20 out of 100. The Puritan doctrine of assurance was then formally codified by the Westminster Confession of Faith, the late 1640s, in this chapter 18, titled, Of the Assurance of Grace and Salvation. The amazing thing is at Westminster, the debates on assurance of faith were very brief. The notes are very skimpy on the debates because all the Puritan writers basically agreed on these four paragraphs. They wrote these four paragraphs very quickly. There was no disharmony, no division among the Puritans on the doctrine of assurance of faith. And so this chapter, these four paragraphs, became the codification of assurance, not just by the Puritans, but for the Reformed and Presbyterian churches all the way down until today. Now, paragraph one just deals with uh, three possibilities, two directly stated, one by implication in relationship to assurance. Here it is. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and the estate of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish... Stop right there a moment. That's false assurance. So that's the first possibility. You can claim to be saved, but have false assurance. Anthony Burgess said, when you have false assurance, you ultimately are possessed with self-love and carnal confidence. And upon this foundation, it is impossible to build a good superstructure of faith. All the piercing and discovering sermons that the prophets in Christ delivered to the Jews and Pharisees could not shake their rotten foundation because of their carnal confidence and their vain trust in themselves. So counterfeit assurance, ultimately trust in my own experiences or my own feelings or my own uh, hopes, and it doesn't trust in the Lord. We vainly deceive ourselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions. But then it goes on to say, paragraph one, yet, and here comes the true assurance, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and love him sincerity, in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. 
Now, it's interesting in this intro paragraph, what Westminster is saying, the Puritans are saying, is that this true assurance is always connected to Christ. Always connected to Christ. You see the expressions, truly believe in him, truly love him, and walk before him. The essence of assurance comes as a fruit of living in Christ. Now, the implication, however, is that we may have that assurance, but it's possible to be a believer and not possess that assurance. So that's the third possibility. Believers may possess saving faith without having a full kind of joy and assurance that they possess it. The Puritans often worked with people like that. Uh, Thomas Goodman wrote a whole treatise on Isaiah 50, verse 10, about the genuine believer who is walking in darkness. They wrote sermons and preached on the struggles of, of Heman having assurance in the Psalms. It's possible, you see, to be a true believer and to be lacking assurance. Anthony Burgess said when that is the case, he had experienced pastorally that the lack of assurance was agonizing for these sincere believers. More painful than broken bones, he said. So this is not an ideal condition, but it is a possibility. To deny that possibility is to injure even more severely the dear believer who is sincerely looking to grow in assurance of faith. So that raises the question, what are the grounds of assurance? And that's what's answered in 18.2. That's the most important paragraph of all, 18.2. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. That's number one. The inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. Number two. And the testimony, number three, of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. Now, it's important here, very important here, not to confuse the foundations or grounds of assurance with the foundations or grounds of salvation. Now, John Murray put it this way, when we speak of the grounds of assurance, we are thinking of the ways in which a believer comes to entertain this assurance, not of the grounds on which his salvation rests. The grounds of salvation are as secure for the person who does not have full assurance as for the person who has. Now, what 18.2 is doing is it's laying down a primary ground of assurance, which is the promises of God in Jesus Christ. So that's a primary objective ground outside of us in Christ, the promises of God. And then two secondary subjective grounds that flow out of and resonate in the heart of the believer from out of the bosom of the promises of God. The first secondary ground that's subjective 
being assurance of the inward evidences of God's graces in my soul, in my life. And the second subjective, secondary ground is the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit of adoption, witnessing with my spirit that I am the child of God, a child of God. So let's look at these three grounds. First is the divine promises in Christ. This is the primary ground for a believer's assurance. I like to compare it to, uh, especially in the Dutch background, meat and potatoes, your basic course for the meal. This is what the believer lives out of day by day. When you wake up in the morning, if you're a fully assured Christian, you are resting on the promises of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thomas Brooks put it this way, the promises of God are a Christian's chiefest evidences for heaven. They are not only the food of faith, but the very life and soul of faith. They are a mine of rich treasures, a garden full of the choicest and sweetest flowers. In them are wrapped up all celestial contentments and delights. Anthony Burgess said, it is a more noble and excellent way to find assurance of faith by relying upon God's promises in Christ outside of us than it is to come to assurance by being assured of the evidences of grace within us. You see, because God's character is such that he cannot lie, his promises are always true, the emphasis of assurance must rest on God's promises in Christ. And now, that implies several things for our experience of assurance. First of all, we do not gain assurance by looking at ourselves or anything we have produced apart from God's promises. Even the other two subjective kinds rest on God's promises. We get assurance, first of all, by looking to God's faithfulness in Christ as he's revealed in the promises. 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20, Paul says, But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. Anthony Burgess says, These promises can never fail because God does not speak out of both sides of his mouth. He's yea and nay in Jesus Christ. These promises cannot fail because God's character is true and faithful. The same offers of grace, the same gospel promises that lead us to salvation are sufficient to lead us to assurance. Second, as assurance grows, God's promises become increasingly real to the believer, personally and experientially. Thomas Goodwin put it this way. <clears throat> if you can find that one promise belongs to you, then they all do. For everyone conveys the whole Christ in whom all the promises are made and who's the matter of them all. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. 
Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org RST4. William Spurstow, fairly unknown Puritan who wrote a wonderful book called The Wells of Salvation, opened, subtitle, a treatise concerning discerning the nature, preciousness, and usefulness of God's gospel promises and the rules for the right application of the same. Those are days when book titles really describe what was in the book. <laughs> and Spurstow has a very interesting example of this. He says, have you ever gone out at night, if you're not near a city, say you're in a rural area, and you looked up in the sky and you saw a star. He said, oh, it's a clear night. I see, I see a star. But you gaze up a bit more as your, as your eyes become accustomed to the sky. You say, well, wait a minute. There's, no, there's two. Oh, wait a minute. There's five. No, there's 10. And as you stand there a little while, suddenly you realize the whole sky is studded with scar, stars. He said, that's like the promises of God. There's more than 3,000 of them in the Bible for believers. And so what happens, what happens is you, when you immerse yourself in the promises and you drink in the word of God, and as time goes by, you see more and more of them, more and more of them become precious to you. But even those that are not peculiarly made precious to you are still precious to you. When you read them, they speak to you and you say more and more, you see, I'm living out of these promises. So Spursto distinguishes between promises made particularly personally precious to you. And if you're a true believer, you know what I mean. Certain promises mean a great deal to you. God has used them in your life. He's spoken powerfully to you through them in your life. But all the promises are yours, yea and amen, in Christ Jesus. All 3,000 belong to you. As the sky is studded with stars, so the word of God is studded everywhere with the promises of God. And on these we rest. A third, the Christ-centeredness of personal assurance is accented in these promises. For Jesus Christ, said the Puritan Edward Reynolds, is the sum, the foundation, and the treasury of all the promises of God. And therefore, said Thomas Brooks, let your eye and your heart first and foremost and last, be fixed upon Christ if you would have assurance, for then assurance will both bed and board with thee. You'll live, you'll be able to rest. Bed and board means like going to sleep in your bed. You'll be able to rest your conscience in the bed of these promises. And finally, Anthony Burgess and several other Puritans make this important point. Those subjective phenomena may sometimes feel, feel more real than faith in God's promises. Such experiences give less glory to God than divine promises apprehended directly by faith. And Burgess explains it this way. Trusting in God and in Christ when we feel nothing but guilt and destruction in ourselves is the greatest honor we can give to God. 
Therefore, though living by signs and marks of grace may seem more comfortable to us, living by naked faith upon God brings greater honor to God. And so the believer, the believer needs to always be encouraged by the pastor, by, by his own conscience to fly to the promises, to use the promises, to rest in the promises. John Bunyan pastorally works with this in such a powerful way, doesn't he? Even when, when Christian and hopeful go into giant despair and they're, they see skulls and they see dead bones laying about and they think, oh, wow, we've, we've come all this ways and we're just about ready to enter the celestial city and we're going to be destroyed after all. And there's locks and bolts and bars and gates in the way. and They can't get out and giant despair is uh, mocking with them. And they, they, they try to rest that night and they can't sleep and they're restless. It's just like a soul who can find no assurance of faith. Everything, I'm, it's, it's going to fare ill with me in the end. I'm going to hell in the end. I'm just a reprobate sinner. I, I, I'm, I'm unworthy of the mercies of God. I've sinned too much. My heart is too hard. And then Christian says, oh, hopeful. I forgot. I, I've got a key in my pocket. And hopeful says, well, what key is that? It's the promises of God. Why, brother, says hopeful, take it out of thy bosom and try it. So hope, Christian takes it out of the bosom, goes to the first set of gates, Bing, they unlock and they walk through another set of gates and they walk through another set of gates. They walk through and they're out free. Use the promises of God. That's what Bunyan is saying. Rest in the promises of God. Trust in the character of God. Spurso put it this way. He said, if you can claim one promise of God, you can claim them all. And he said, what God delights to do is he delights to share his promises with believers, with his people. He said, it's as if, as if God took all the golden coins of his promises, think, think 3,000 now, and put them all in one large bag and tied up the bag. And then he brought them over to your feet and he laid them, the bag right at your feet and he untied the bag and he poured them out at your feet. And he said, my child, my needy child, take what you will. Take what you will. God is free to give his promises. That's the foundation of our assurance. The foundation of the foundation. Now, on top of that foundation, however, there needs to be something else. We're tempted to say, end of story. We have assurance, we trust the promises of God, there's nothing more to say. But John Calvin already said this. There needs to be a corroborating witness inside of me based on the fruits and the marks of grace that the Holy Spirit has worked in my life to have this assurance be solidified in my own conscience and the Spirit testify within me with my conscience that it's true for this reason. There are millions and millions and millions of people that will just go to the Bible and say, well, all the promises are for me and none of the threatenings are for me. 
Uh, but don't show the fruit of treasuring Christ and his promises in their lives. You see, that's the problem. That's the problem with easy believism. That's the problem, I'm afraid, with many millions of Christians, so-called Christians, in our world today. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. What is the Christian parent's greatest responsibility? To teach their children to trust the one true living God. Enrich your family devotions from the Family Worship Bible Guide. This precious book offers rich devotional thoughts for children of all ages on every chapter in the Bible. To learn more about the Family Worship Bible Guide, visit heritagebooks.org. Oh, yeah, I'm on my way to heaven. You know, uh, there was a study done about 15 years ago. And the numbers wouldn't be so high now, I suppose. But the study was, in America, how many Americans believe that there is a real hell and that people will actually go there? And at that time, the answer was 86%. And then the question was asked, is there any possibility that you would go to hell? 4% said yes. It's actually not a laughing matter. This, this is a problem. This is a huge problem. See, everyone thinks they're good enough to go to heaven. There are many people who use the Christian faith, use the promises of God, but don't bear the fruits of living out of those promises in the marks and evidences of the Christian life. And so Calvin already said, justification by faith in Christ through the promises must produce sanctification, must produce the inward evidences of grace. So we're not done. We've got to be able to examine ourselves and say, by the light of the Holy Spirit, I show those evidences by the sheer grace of God in my life that confirm that my leaning on the promises of God is true and genuine because it bears fruit in my life. Well, let's go back. Let's go back to my example with, with my wife. All right. I love her. She loves me. We're both assured. We enter into marriage, and uh, one of us is unfaithful. What then? Well, we had better question our assurance of our love for each other. We had better question that. When you walk contrary to God and live a backsliding lifestyle, a sinful lifestyle, you had better question whether you really have assurance from trusting in the promises of God because your life isn't showing the fruit of trusting in the promises of God. Now, the Puritans used some logic here. The same, they got it from, by the way, from 1 John. That's why I read those verses at the beginning. Eleven times in 1 John, John says something like this. We know we've passed from death to life because, because we love the brethren. Or because we keep the commandments of God. So John, 1 John is especially the book 
of assurance of faith that flows out of the inward evidences or fruits in the believer's life. But there are many other places. How did Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? With eight evidences, inward evidences of the life of faith. The Beatitudes. What did Paul say in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? He gave eight or nine fruits of the Spirit. Every one of those fruits and the whole package of fruit is, a, is an inward evidence. What does Peter do in 2 Peter 1? where he says, make your calling and election sure, just prior to that, he gives you seven or eight more evidences. You add that up together, you've got about 30 fruits of grace, evidences of grace. And so Westminster says here that we not only get our assurance from the promises of God in Jesus Christ, but also from the inward evidences of grace unto which these promises are made. So how does that work? Well, the Puritans said, it's like a reflex act of faith in what they called a syllogism. Now, they educated their students, even at an elementary school level, in syllogisms. We don't do that today but we actually think syllogistically quite often, more than we realize. We just don't do it quite as consciously as they did it. But let me try to explain it as simple as I can. It's like you take your heart, your your core being, and you set it outside of yourself on this piano, and you examine it. And you say, Holy Spirit of God, you get down on your knees and you pray, please give me discerning light to examine who I really am, what are the evidences of and the fruits of grace in my life, if there are any there. Now, here's the encouraging thing about the Puritans. If you could find one evidence of saving grace in your heart that the Scripture gives as an evidence by which you may know that you know and believe that you believe, you actually have all the rest, whether you can see them or not. Theodore Beza already said that. He said it's like a necklace around the neck of a woman. If you, could, if you could pull on one bead on that necklace and get it to move and have it resonate in your heart, that you have that mark of grace in your life, there'll be a tug on all the rest. And so listen, listen to Burgess as, as, as he explains this logic of assurance here. He says, first of all, There are the direct acts of the soul, whereby the soul immediately and directly responds to some object, like trusting in the promises of God. Second, there are reflex acts of the soul, by which the soul considers and observes what acts the soul itself does. It's as if the eye is turned inward to see itself. The Apostle John expresses this fully by saying, we we do know that we know. So when we believe in God and in his promises, that is a direct act of the soul. But when we repent of sin because God is dishonored, that too is a direct act of the soul. But when we know that we do believe and we know that we do repent of our sin, that is a reflex act of the soul. So let's put it into practice. Here's how it goes. Major premise of the syllogism. Let me... Pick one example. Uh, 
A great mark of grace is Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So a major premise would be something like this. All those and only those, all those and only those who hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Jesus Christ are saved. Want to start reading the Puritans but don't know where to begin? Puritan Treasures for Today from Reformation Heritage Books makes the riches of these godly writers of old accessible for the modern reader. With updated language and helpful introductions, these classic works from John Owen, Jeremiah Burroughs, and others are the perfect starting point for the curious reader. Learn more about Puritan Treasures for Today at heritagebooks.org forward slash Puritan Treasures. Minor premise. After I get down on my knees, ask for the Holy Spirit to co-witness with me, to help me examine myself in uprightness and truth, I can declare, and I can declare that to you right now, in my life, I do hunger and thirst I'd have since I was 15 years old after the righteousness of Christ. I have no doubt about that. So minor premise. By the grace of God, I do hunger and thirst. I cannot deny it. And the Spirit testifies with me that it's true. I do hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Christ. Conclusion. I am a child of God. So that's the syllogism of inward evidences based upon, built on, the foundational ground of the promises of God. Now, what do you do? What do you do if you wake up tomorrow morning and you just feel ungodly and you had, you had maybe some wrong sinful thoughts and you say, this morning I can't, I can't see that I hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Christ. I feel like nothing but a big fat sinner. Well, Anthony Burgess says, if you can't find any marks of grace in you on a particular occasion, you flee back to the promises of God and you seek to cling to those. And if you can't, can't cling to those, you flee to other marks of grace and try yourself by those. Let me give you a quick example. We had a minister in our background who, who had a very, very strangely dark deathbed he just lost all assurance of faith. It was really, really sad. And uh, ministers came to him, talked to him. Nobody could assure him. Nobody could give him comfort. He said, I've brought the word of God for decades to others, and I'm going to die and go to hell. That's what he said. He just lost everything under the harassments of Satan. And finally, a minister came by, and he said, let me read you from the first epistle of John. We know that we have passed from death to life because we, we love to do the commandments of God. Oh, the man said, the minister said, no, that's not me. I'm, I've sinned against all the commandments over and over again, and I, I, just, I, I just feel so ungodly, so unconverted. Oh, he said, let me try another one. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Can't you say you love the brethren? And the minister thought a moment, and he goes, 
Oh, yes, I, I can't deny that. I, I do have a special love for the people of God. I've ministered to them all these years. They're very, very dear to me. You're a child of God, the minister said. So that's what John says. And his bands were broken. And suddenly he could see the Lord working in his heart and his life. And then all the rest fell in place and he could embrace it all and he died in peace. Now that's an unusual story. But, but that's what Burgess is saying. That's what Burgess is saying. When you can't see one, you flee to another. And if you can pull on one, you see, all the rest, all the rest are there because God does a complete work. Now, what about assurance from the Holy Spirit's witnessing testimony? That's the third part of 18.2. The testimony of the Holy Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. Now, this is worded very carefully. This is the most challenging one of the three. And there's a little vagueness here that maybe the divines left purposely because there was actually two groups of Puritans here on the witness of the Spirit. Some of them, like, like um, Anthony Burgess, said that <clears throat> the Spirit's witnessing with our spirit is the same thing as the inward evidences. All that this means is that as we look for the inward evidences of grace in our own soul, the Spirit, as we ask Him to give us light, witnesses with our spirit that it's true that these inward evidences are in us. So Anthony Burgess would say there's only one secondary ground of assurance. Inward evidences combined with the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Others, like Samuel Rutherford, uh, Henry Scudder, others said, no, there's something more here. Yes, the Spirit does witness with our spirit in the inward evidences, that, but there's also reference here to a direct witness of the Holy Spirit. And what do they mean by that? Well, <clears throat> what the Puritans meant by that, at least a good number of them, was that the Holy Spirit at certain times in my life, will apply a particular text to me, whether it's a particular promise or a particular comfort. He will apply a text to me in such a way that it will be in a time of need particularly, such that it is the most appropriate text in all the Bible for me. That's the way I feel at that time. Directly, this is no reflex act of faith, thinking about what's going on in me, but a direct application of the word that gives a great boost to my assurance. And as that happens, the Spirit witnesses with my spirit that I am a child of God. I can say amen to that text or to that word from God, and it is so suitable for me that I have no doubt that I'm a child of God and that God has sent this to me. In Puritan mind, this was not mysticism. This was God taking his word and applying it with power to the soul. Now, the danger, the danger of this third kind of assurance is that if we're not careful, we can make this somehow superior to the other two. And those who do believe in this kind of application, stressed, again and again in Puritan thought, 
This is not the meat and potatoes. This is not even the vegetables. The vegetables of every meal would be the inward evidences. That's a, every morning I wake up when my frame of mind is normal, I should be able to find assurance of faith, at least to some substantial degree, in the promises of God and in the in, inward evidences of my soul. The direct testimony of the Holy Spirit is something more unusual. It's not to be regarded as higher. You might think of it as a little bit dessert, a little cherry on the cake. That's okay. But don't make it superior to the other kinds because that can, you can then fall into antinomianism or some other kind of error in which you glorify that kind of experience and look more for that than for the inward evidences. And the evidences, inward evidences are the way you live from day to day, and that is the most important of all. So that's where the Puritans are at on how you receive assurance of faith. And they stressed that all three kinds of assurance I just mentioned are indispensably connected with the work of the Holy Spirit in the soul. And the more you have of each of them, the more robust and the more full your assurance is. And so they said, seek to make your calling and election sure. It means seek to have as much as you can of all three of these kinds of assurance. Now, without the application of the Spirit, the Puritan said this, without the application of the Spirit, the promises of God may lead to self-deceit and carnal presumption and fruitless lives. We've already seen that. Without the illumination of the Spirit, self-examination may tend to introspection, bondage, and legalism. And without the witness of the Spirit, that is, divorced from the promises of God and from Scripture, or I'm sorry, the witness of the Spirit alone, divorced from the promises of God and from the Scriptural inward evidences, can lead to unbiblical mysticism, antinomianism, and excessive emotionalism. See how careful they are. You've got to bring together the promises of God all throughout the Bible, the inward evidences, think 1 John, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, think Romans 8, 15, 16. All three kinds come together to grow the assurance in the believer by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Now, much more quickly now, the last two paragraphs. How do you cultivate that assurance? That's paragraph three. Paragraph three. There's four quick practical lessons to learn here. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. So that's saying something about the timing. It may take a while before a believer really grows into a large measure of assurance. God normally works it by degrees. Sometimes when we're in great need, we get a big boost of it. Sometimes a young believer has more than an older believer. God is free and sovereign. But generally speaking, the longer we are in the way, the longer we're trusting the track record of God, the more assurance we will have. That's the timing of it. Yet, going back to 18.3, yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may without extraordinary revelation, that's in there against the Roman Catholics, 
in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto, attain to this assurance. So that's the second thing here. You use the ordinary means to grow your assurance. And the Puritans said, basically, these are four things. God's Word, obviously. The sacraments, obviously. They called it sacramental assurance, actually, because it was so common for God to grow assurance under the sacraments when we focus on Jesus. Prayer, obviously, God speaks to us through His Word. We speak back to God through prayer. So when there's a two-way communication... That grows assurance. And then interestingly, the fourth one the Puritans often comment on is affliction. Affliction. God often uses affliction to grow assurance because it casts us upon him and we need him all the more and God sanctifies tunnels of affliction in order to bring us back out into the sunshine of his grace with increased measures of assurance. Back to 18.3. And therefore, it is the duty, so this is the third thought, the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure. That's our duty. We owe it to God. John Bunyan said, God is pleased to give you his grace and therefore go out and get more grace. Grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Puritan stress on duty means this is never something designed just for exceptional saints, but large dosages of assurance, growing, growing, growing assurance is meant to be normative. But believers must use the ordinary means. And then fourth, the last part of 18.3, to make his calling election sure, that thereby, and here come the fruits, the fruits of assurance, his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. You see, that was Roman Catholicism. If you, if you teach this assurance and you make it normative for believers, then men will live loosely. They say, oh, well, I'm saved anyway, doesn't matter. No, no, no. The Puritans say, there will be these fruits. This is how you know that you have assurance. When you have it, your heart will be enlarged. You will have peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You will be filled with more love and thankfulness to God. You will be, you have strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. These are the proper fruits of assurance. So these are the very marks of grace by which you, you test yourself. All right, finally, is it possible to lose assurance? 18.4, absolutely. How? Well, 18.4, the last paragraph, talks about how to lose it and how to get it back. True believers, 18.4 now, can have, may have the assurance of their salvation in diverse ways, different ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. Stop right there. The normal way to lose assurance is this way. And the fault is us. We stop using the ordinary means of grace. 
We, we get out of the Word, for example. I had an elder one time who called me up just as I was leaving for a trip, and he said, I'm in a bad way. I can't pray. I can't read the Bible. I, I'm just, I'm full of darkness. Can you come and see me? And I said, well, I can't. I'm leaving, but I'll come back in three days. The next three days, you spend a half an hour each day alone with God, 10 minutes reading the Bible, 10 minutes, what the Puritans called the halfway house between reading and prayer, meditation, and then 10 minutes in prayer. Read, meditate, pray. Read, meditate, pray. Read, meditate, pray for half an hour. He said, Pastor, I can't do it. It will be an abomination to the Lord. I said, it'll be a double abomination if you don't do it. (laughs) Because God uses his ordinary means. Three days later, I came back, walked into my study. There was a note on my chair, no need to visit so-and-so because all is well with his soul. He just got back into the Word and meditating and praying. So what Westminster is saying to us, we walk in the ordinary means, and God will use that to stir up these graces so that we don't lose our assurance, but grow in our assurance. How can a Christian expect to grow in assurance when, when, when he spends more time watching ball games than he does in the Word of God? It doesn't make any sense. Now, but what if you do lose it? What if you are walking in low levels of obedience and you lose your high levels of assurance? Well, the Holy Spirit won't abandon you completely. You see, he will revive it in due time, Westminster says. And he will restore you. He's almighty. He loves to keep his children from not only from utter despair, but he will revive them the same way it was obtained the first time. And so believers should review their lives, confess their backsliding, humbly cast themselves afresh upon their covenant-keeping God and His gracious promises in Christ, and continue to engage in fresh acts of ongoing conversion through faith and repentance. You've got to take the key back out of your pocket and use it again. You come back to God the same way you came to Him the first time, through repentance and faith, based on the promises. But then there's one more thing here. Notice what 18.4 goes on to say. By some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. What in the world does that mean? That means that there can be times when the believer is not backsliding, but feels a loss of assurance that he himself cannot explain to himself. And the Puritans, being so pastoral, draw on Isaiah 50, verse 10, and a couple other dozen texts in the Bible about believers walking in darkness. And and they say, we will deal pastorally with these individuals. We're not going to squash them, crush them. But we're going to say to them that there's sometimes sovereign reasons in God, mysterious reasons we don't understand fully, but reasons to keep us humble, reasons to keep us appreciative of assurance when we do have it, where God withdraws the light of his countenance for a period of time. But don't despair. Keep going back to his word. Keep going back to prayer and so on. So out of pastoral motivations, they encourage their people that sometimes God is just sovereign. There will be some ups and downs in assurance. 
due to his sovereign lessons that he wants to teach us. In his fatherly discipline, says Anthony Burgess, which teaches us right walking. In his fatherly sovereignty, which teaches us dependence on him. And his fatherly wisdom, by which he knows what is best to give us and what is best to withhold us from. And William Gunnell says, by these fatherly sovereign dispensations of God sometimes withdrawing himself to some degree, not totally, a Christian learns how to comfort others who are in spiritual sorrow, learns to be a more humble Christian, and learns to trust even in a withdrawing God to the glory of God. Well, this assurance will be revived in due time. A perfect example of this is John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. I go back to that. You remember when Christian lost the burden off his back, rolled into the empty sepulcher, He had justification by faith alone. He had the forgiveness of sins. And he received a scroll. What was that scroll? It was his tangible proof that he had assurance of faith. And he goes on with that scroll. He knows in whom he's believed. And what happens? He comes into a little arbor and he falls asleep. He becomes careless. It's Bunyan's way of saying it. Not that we don't need any sleep. Don't make that parallel. He's sleeping spiritually. He's wandering from the Lord. When he wakes up, he goes on his journey, and suddenly he realizes, oh no, I don't have the scroll. What's Bunyan saying? He lost his assurance. He was spiritually sloppy. He was backsliding. He was spiritually drowsy. And he realizes what he's missing. So he goes back, and he finds it again. And he walks on his way with joy and obedience, using the means of grace again. That's Bunyan's way of picturing this whole process, losing the assurance through my own carelessness and then getting it back through the means of grace and walking forward in the joy of the Lord. So in conclusion, our primary ground of assurance is in the promises of God in Christ. These promises must be applied to our hearts, must bear fruit in our lives and help us experience the Spirit's corroborating witness with our spirit that we are indeed the sons of God. So at the end of the day, faith will ultimately triumph in every believer because it comes from the triune God and it rests on his word. And Christ shall ultimately win the day in believers. That is what faith and assurance, what Calvin and Reformed and Puritan theology, yes, Scripture and life itself are all about, honoring the triune God through Jesus Christ and his promises and finding my assurance and comfort in him. For of him and through him and to him are all thanks to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask thy benediction upon this address as well and the further addresses of the conference yet to come. We thank thee for the wisdom given to the Puritans as physicians of souls in dealing with this uh, intimate and personal doctrine of full personal assurance of faith, of grace, and of salvation. 
Grant that we too may grow in this doctrine all our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to All of Life for God by Reformation Heritage Books. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. Reformation Heritage Books is a nonprofit ministry aiming to strengthen the church through Reformed, Puritan, and experiential literature. To learn more about this ministry and how to support us, please visit rhb.org dot o-r-g